Welcome to Drone Business Talk, the show where we discuss the business of unmanned aviation. Find out about the latest drone applications and trends as we talk to drone company CEOs, business owners, pilots, and thought leaders to reveal the status of the drone industry. Here is your host, Tom Verbruggen. Welcome to episode 20 of Drone Business Talk. We're back with our series on the pioneers of the drone industries, and today's guest is Anna, Planning and Operations Manager at CyberHawk. Welcome, Anna. How are you? I'm good, Leonard. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, surprising question. Could you maybe start by introducing yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been in the drone industry for about three years. Uh, I started out in the architecture industry and started utilizing drones as a design tool in the architecture industry. So that um, prompted me to get into the drone industry. Um, I started as a pilot in California working on transmission lines, um, doing inspections. And that's how I learned about CyberHawk. Um, I joined CyberHawk last year, beginning of 2021. So I've been with them for about a year now. Uh, I was a pilot in the field for six months for them and then have moved into the office role um, as a planning manager. And do you, do you miss it flying the drones or do you prefer the, the planning part? Uh, you know, it's that's a good question. I do, the field life is so fun and you know, you get to see parts of the world that other people don't get to see, uh, which is pretty incredible. So I do miss that aspect of it. I also, um, fortunately, as planning managers, still get to be involved in the innovation in the tech that we're delivering out in the field. Um, so like, for example, this last week, I was in California, um, and we were working with phase one, uh, starting to use their sensors as some of our inspection equipment. Um, and so that's been a great part of the planning manager role is that I still occasionally get to go out to the field and have that experience still, which is great. Yeah, that's nice. Um, yes. Can you maybe um, tell me a little bit more as well about what it is that CyberHog does um, and how, for example, a Scottish uh, company ended up uh, in the US? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so CyberHog is an end-to-end -end data solution for the energy sector. Of essentially. So we go out, we complete the inspection, um, take all the imagery that we need to with the drones. We have inspection engineers that do analysis on it as well and assist with analysis with other companies or the, the client that we're producing for. Um, and then we also have IHOC, which is a data solution um, for them in terms of keeping all of the information together in one accessible place. It makes actionable information easier for our clients to access. Um, so it's really an end-to-end -end solution, right? We provide the planning for teams to go out in the field, um, all of the operations. Uh, we provide the data, the analysis, and also kind of a hosting platform for the clients to be checking in on their data and uh, analyze what's happening. Um, so it's really, a broad, a broad yeah. company, um, which is wonderful. And uh, they got into the U.S. because they wanted to, it was um, in 2019 or 2020. Yeah, 2020 was the first year, I believe, that they're in the U.S. Um, as a full operation. They, in 2019, they had a few pilots come over from the U.K. to work on the Pacific Gas and Electric contract. Um, so they're specifically seeking transmission um, structures in the US because we do it for Scottish electric in Scotland. Um, and so they won the contract, they came over and they really wanted to start into the US market. 
And so they, um, the first year they had 3000 structures and then we tripled. So last year we did 30,000 inspections and this year we're growing again, um, with that specific contract and it's just continued to grow and pursue. And as we're working with PG&E, um, you know, other power and electric companies and utility companies are reaching out to us about inspections and how they can work with us to make sure all of their assets are safe, essentially. Yeah, that is a, that is a crazy number of, of inspections. Yeah. Um, how, how do you manage that as, as, a, as a planning and operations manager? Yeah, so we, we have a pretty intense um, system. I guess we use all of these different softwares to keep us on track, right? So every day I plan in teams out in the field. So for those 30,000 last year, for example, we had 25 teams in the field. And so I used uh, QGIS and we had all of the scope in QGIS and I was able to assign them different structures to inspect during the day. And then we used Trello actually as our, um, like our team board. Yeah. And so we just give them their assignments in the team board. They get a KML, they get the structures they need to inspect, and then they can mark those as complete as they go. Yeah. And then we re-ingest into our system so we know what's been completed at least that's how we track the structures but then the the human aspect of it is a whole nother level right because it's 50 people you have in the field that you're managing every day that have 10 cyber jeeps and this much equipment and they're moving around california from bakersfield all the way up to the northern border so it's essentially uh, uh, the land mass is three times the size of scotland so it's just it's massive endeavor to plan that um but yeah i, I can imagine that you get a lot of calls every oh day. yeah <laughs> all the time um we use teams as our communication microsoft teams and my chat history is just insane but i can imagine yeah um how is it to to operate um within within the u.s market um because I can imagine that for a Scottish company, the, the legislation is quite, it's quite different than mm -hmm. in the US market, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and that's something that we're working through right now. Actually, you know, you mentioned that Idronect is kind of in that startup stage. It feels like we're in that startup stage in the US a little bit. So the UK has all of their systems in place and everything um, for, you know, their different air regulations and all of that. And so we're still developing those systems in the US in terms of um, FAA regulations and all of that. We've figured out how to bring over those Scottish systems or at least the, um, the mindset or the principles behind those systems and how we can start implementing yeah. those in the US. But we are very much in that startup stage. So in the planning seat, it's not just the planning that I'm handling, you know, it's fleet management it's equipment it's just everything which is pretty fun at times and also is a, a big endeavor for the company yeah i can imagine that it that it's quite quite challenging um yes. how did you how did you end up in that in that position um yeah that's a, and that's a good question um so when i when i was piloting in the field i was initially just flying structures so transmission towers um and then about two months in i was one of a couple only a couple pilots we had that were qualified to fly the m300 
and uh, we needed to do substation inspections specifically. And so that was a separate scope of work than the transmission. Um, and so the current or the planning manager at the time was Martin. He's now moved into the project management role. And so he was doing the planning there for transmission, but he essentially handed me substations in the field so that I could organize those, coordinate with the client, all of those types of things. So it kind of identified me as someone who was good at the planning role. Um, and so Martin, we, we had to um, ramp up teams really quickly last year to finish scope. And so we got, we went from 13 teams up to 25 in the span of two weeks. And so he needed help in that role. And so, and he had already identified me from the substation scope that I would be good at handling client interactions and being able to plan that and kind of just take lead on that kind of stuff. So he asked if I wanted to come into the planning role and uh, it's based in Denver, which is where I am from. Um, so my family's here, my friends are here. So it was a good, a good fit for me. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds, sounds, sounds about right. Um, yeah. How, how big is the, is the, I know I had another question. Um, no, it's good. <laughs> um, so yeah, as Cyberhawk is, is rapidly growing, um, mm -hmm. for, for a lot of, a lot of companies that is, that is one of the hardest parts is, is yeah. growing your company. How, how does that reflect into Cyberhawk? What are the challenges and what are the things that went a lot better than expected? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I think something that Cyberhawk is really good about is viewing challenge as opportunity. And so, you know, we're faced with these, you, you even mentioned, you know, US systems versus UK systems. How do we get those to integrate um, and work cohesively still across a company that's functioning in both markets, right? Um, and so I think it's always viewed as this opportunity to solve a problem and to solve it really well. Um, and so I think that comes through in the culture essentially of Cyberhawk. And we have this idea of be open. Um, you know, we have company values that really help us in to adjust to those kind of challenges and work with each other instead of making it more difficult for each other. Yeah. We're really good about sharing knowledge. Um, but I think that's been one of the biggest things is just last year we were really lean uh, in the management level, right? We had essentially four people running the entire US endeavor, which is really difficult. So uh, we have, I have been continually been impressed with the people that I get to work with every day and their dedication and effort and how much we all care about the project and the people on it and wanting to do the best by the teams that we have in the field. And um, I think that's been one of the most challenging pieces is learning how to implement the systems correctly so that everyone can have a good work-life balance and understand, you know, that we are still human. And even though it's crazy deadlines, for this project and everything at the end of the day, we have to come back to it with understanding, you know, as a company. Um, so I think that that's really been the biggest challenge is just getting those systems off the ground and understanding how they correlate to the UK branch um, and making sure that we're doing everything by the book. I mean, in, when I started in the drone industry in the US three years ago, we would refer to it as the Wild West, right? There were no rules, nobody knew what was going on. 
Um, and so I think we're also leading in that regard at CyberHawk. We're putting systems in place. We're saying this is how it should be done. Um, you know, we're implementing softwares like iHawk and things like that for our clients um, that hasn't really been seen in the US before. And so I think those pieces of it have been challenging in some ways, but also have gone well in others um, because of the, the people that we have. And yeah, I mean, overall, we've gone through this rapid growth period and have been able to achieve our goals. And that's been a pretty incredible process to be a part of. Um, yeah. And this year we have focus on um, just kind of three pillars, which are safety, production, and quality. And so we're implementing systems to ensure all of those pillars, I guess, can be um, pursued throughout the project successfully. And I, so far it's been going really well. Um, last year was, again, we were running really lean at the management level. So it was a lot, a lot of dedication, a lot of hard work, but um, we're starting to get there. We're starting to hit stride, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's very good to hear. I think that that's a very important point is definitely when, when growing is to keep a nice balance between efficiency and, and not losing the, the personal touch um, between management right. and, and pilots. Um, how, what does, what does the future look like for Cyberhawk? Um, like, how is it, or is it a plan to, to scale up a lot more? Probably, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're looking to grow significantly in the US, right? Um, we have a lot of different interests, a lot of different clients that um, are in the kind of onboarding stages, if you will, um, for projects moving forward. Uh, we are um, really wanting to uh, implement and encourage our clients to use iHawk, right? It's really our mm -hmm. biggest solution for them, um, which you know, I think we're moving more into kind of a software solutions company in that regard. Right now, we're really heavy in the planning and operations side of everything, just boots on the ground. You know, that's really what we offer clients at the moment in the US. Whereas in the UK, we offer the more of like the software solution side. And so we're really trying to get to that end to end process in the US of we are going to be the boots on the ground to an extent and then, but we are also going to be the software provider. And so that will also diversify kind of our revenue stream and everything like that, which will be kind of the goals over the next couple of years. And will it, will it always be the goal to, to, to keep everything in house or um, is something like working with freelance pilots also something that is, um, that is going to be on the, on the schedule to make it. Yeah. So, so we actually have, um, Right now, we have quite a few contractors on the project that are essentially freelance pilots. Um, and I, th I think that that's something that we as a company would like to change because it's, you know, we have contractors on the project that they're only going to be here for three months and then they're stressed about where they're finding their next piece of work. And it's, you know, it makes for a stressful industry for the pilots. Um, so we're trying to work with our clients uh, to balance out kind of the scope of work. For example, right now, PG&E has um, really front-loaded us this year with scope because they have structures that have to be inspected before wildfire season. And so they're super high threat structures that need that inspection done at a certain time. But then that means that front-loaded scope requires us to have this many teams. And then once fire season starts, then we only need this many teams. 
to complete the scope. And so we really want to get to a point with our clients where we can, you know, keep those guys on full time essentially and not have to do the contractor model um, because that's also been a, con a concern from pilots to us that they would really pr prefer to have kind of a full-time salaried position. And that's just not the way it's been done in the U S so far across all vendors. Right. So mm -hmm. it's just kind of the mentality. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds a bit like, like seasonal work basically. Yeah. With yeah. Fires. Right. It, can you, can you tell me, um, because it, it definitely like on your website and so on as well, it's, it seems like something that you're very proud of, of the, um, IHOP. Can you tell me a little bit more in detail about, about what it is? Yeah. So uh, again, it's a data solution for our clients. And so we're collecting all of this information, right. And it can be an overwhelming amount of data that we're producing, which is amazing to us, right. Because we know how valuable that is. Um, but a client oftentimes just needs to go in and find very specific items within that data. And so IHOC is really just um, this easy and intuitive tool for them to navigate through all of this information that we've produced for them. Um, we're also starting to pioneer like AI and machine learning with it and how we can start to integrate that into the IHOC system. Um, so for example, right now with uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, we've been doing distribution lines with them as well. And we've started to host all of that information in IHOC and they're finding that they can do their inspections significantly faster than they were able to do it before. And so that's a relief for the client as well. So it's really a solution that's geared towards the client's needs. Um, we have a big software team in the UK of developers that are constantly working on IHOC and developing kind of bespoke solutions within that platform for what our clients are looking for. All right. Amazing. It's a very good differentiator, I think as well, to, to, to be, to be different from, from the competition. Yeah. Um, and that is, that is something that I wanted to ask about as well. How big is the competition? Um, in the U S it's pretty large, especially in the utilities sector. Um, you know, within California itself, you have three different massive utilities in terms of electric. And so there's multiple different vendors within California that are um, producing. I think within within the UK, we have less competition, but um, not, you know, it's something that we're always mindful of and aware of just as a company, right? You have to be. Um, but when it comes to like oil and gas inspections and solar and wind, um, you know, we've tended to be a front runner in the industry over the years and continue to be that. Um, but I think that, again, just like you mentioned, you know, IHOC really sets us apart. Um, and I think also the planning management sets us apart that we have a different system that we're working through and we can make kind of bespoke solutions for our clients based on like a base system that we've already created and we can manipulate in different ways to meet their needs as efficiently as possible and solve their, their problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, because one of the questions that I wrote down as well is, um, why did you, why, why did, why did Cyberhawk focus on, on the utilities industry? Um, 
So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So our history, um, our founders were both um, involved in the oil and gas industry, and they saw they saw this need for safe inspections, right, for flares specifically in oil rigs. And um, Chris Fleming, who's our CEO, he um, started out in he was a climber, essentially. I don't recall the exact term for it, but the person who goes up you know, and climbs that and under and has to fix it or repair it or inspect it. And so he saw this huge gap in safety and um, had a little awareness of drone technology at the time when it was just coming up. And he was like, well, what if we, what if we use drones to inspect, you know, these difficult pieces of infrastructure and how many lives could that save and how more, much more efficient could we be doing that? Um, and so that's really where that kind of came from. And it just started to branch across all these different energy sectors specifically. And so that's really just where that basis came from. We knew the industry, we knew what was needed within it. And then was a, we were able to spread that same need across different utilities of, you know, electric and transmission and um, wind and solar and all of that. Yeah, if I if I remember correctly, um, and maybe maybe you know more about that, is that um, people used to climb up there. I think it's something called like rope access. Yes, um, exactly. That's it. Um, and then they had to turn off the flare stack and like shut down part of the oil rig in order to do the inspection. And then with the drones, you don't have to do that anymore. So you yeah don't lose money because exactly. it, it has to be turned off. That's right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. When you're operating in that sector, um, safety and risk management is probably the, the most important thing, um, mm -hmm. definitely in, in the oil and gas industry. Absolutely. Um, how does, uh, how does CyberHawk handle that? So we have just um, an incredible amount of pre-planning that goes into every operation that we do. Um, we have an internal system that gives us risk assessment and method statement. So for every project that we do, we create a risk assessment and a method statement um, to understand what's at play, you know, how risky is this? Um, and then we also go through that with our client to say, this is what we see as risk. This is how we're going to mitigate it. Here is our safety protocol. Um, so pre-planning is the biggest part. And then we also have fortunately have very experienced pilots. Um, that are very aware of all of the risks that they're encountering. And so something that we require before any flight is also uh, just a dynamic risk assessment on site. So you go through with your team and you say, okay, I see you know, this issue here. When we're getting this shot, I'm going to need this sort of mitigation and we need to talk about that and have that sort of communication. Um, so those are big, big checklists that we go through every time that we fly, essentially. Um, and then we also have just across the company that anybody has what we call stop work authority. If anything feels unsafe at any point in time, anybody has the ability to say, we need to stop work, we need to land the drone, and we need to proceed in a different way because this is unsafe. I think that's very nice um, because um, I think a lot, of, a lot of companies portray themselves to be um, with, with very high safety um, and risk standards yeah. um, but in the field it's often um, a bit more of the of the Cabo Rodeo style right <laughs> um, so it, it's good to hear 
um, that that it's not always like that. Um, let me see. Um, what is going to be the next big thing, do you think, in, in the drone industry? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think there's different different pieces. I think in the US right now is going to be autonomous flight, right? We have a lot of companies that are working towards drone delivery and autonomous flights for inspection and all of those elements. So I think eventually it's going to become a pilot sitting potentially in an office somewhere that's managing a swarm of drones, right? Um, and so I think that's really where I see it headed in, in terms of the technology. I think there is great opportunity to start using drones for different types of data collection um, to help us, you know, whether it's environmental or energy or even, you know, coming from the design background, there are a lot of great uses for it there in terms of just understanding our world a bit more and um, starting to visualize in different ways. I think they're a really powerful tool so I think we're going to start seeing them just, you know, walking down the street and there'll be a drone delivering something to somebody. Is it, is it, um, how is the legislation in the U.S. about um, BV loss flight? BV loss flight um, is a pretty intense legislation right now. Uh, a lot of companies are working through it. We've been doing some testing with it. Um, and, you know, you have to go through a pretty intensive process with the FAA to get waivers for that and permission for that. Um, I think the, the biggest thing is just that there's so much red tape in the FAA as a federal administration, right? So it's something that um, kind of governs all airspace across the U.S., but then depending on where you are, there may be different COAs or different airspace that you're encountering. And so there's a lot of different levels that you have to go through in terms of um, getting those permissions. I think it is going to eventually, um, maybe five years seems really fast for a federal administration or a federal body to approve something like that, just kind of across the board, but I think it's getting there. Um, yeah. Yeah, if I, like if what like what I see in Europe is, is yeah. or definitely in here in Belgium, it's as good as impossible to get authorized to do BV loss flights. I don't think there has been more than two BV loss flights within Belgium. Oh, wow. Okay. Which yeah. makes sense because Belgium is like this tiny minuscule country. Right. So there's not really that big of a need for it. Um, right. I think the the reasons that we've been able to get waivers and permissions for it is because it's related to hazard, like immediate risk to a greater population. And so using BV loss on a drone to go inspect something that somebody cannot get access to within a couple hours um, on foot or by vehicle or any other means. Um, and it also is safer than, than sending people in to inspect that. So I think I think there is understanding of that in the U.S. that there are certain situations that BV loss can be beneficial. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why why it's in Belgium so much more, or in Europe in general. I think it's it's it doesn't happen that often. Right. Um, is there? It's I'm I'm done. I'm I'm done with with my questions. Um, is there <laughs> anything that that you want to make promotion for, or that you want to that you want to talk about? 
I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think this has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. You know, it's it's always very cool to connect across the world and see what's happening in the drone industry. Um, I guess I'm curious, where, where do you see the drone industry going in the next five years? Um, that is a good question. Usually people don't ask me questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, no, but what I think, um, what I see from, from, from the business that we're doing is that, um, and definitely within Europe, is that package deliveries with autonomous drones, that is going to make a big rising, I think. Um, definitely what we're seeing in, in places that are our countries that have, for example, a lot of small islands that need to be supplied with, for example, medical, um, mm -hmm. medical supplies and stuff like that. I think that can be a very big, um, like operation or a very big part of the drone business that can grow. Um, but what I actually hope that will happen is that in five years, drones will be doing things that we couldn't imagine right now. Mm -hmm. Um, because we're still very in the very early stages of the industry yeah. and we're, we're just discovering ourselves what drones can do. And now we still have to convince companies like, Hey, it has these advantages and it's safe and blah, blah, right. blah, blah. Right. So I hope that in five years, there's this massive expansion that people um, start innovating in the ways that we can use drones. Mm -hmm. I think that is something that I'm looking very much forward to. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And something, I'm curious about how it's taken in Europe, but in US, the like the general public has kind of a very negative view of drones, right? They feel that they're being watched or, you know, just that it's a violation of privacy. Is it is it that way in Europe as well? Um, I, I can't really speak for, for Europe in, in general, but in Belgium, it's, it's pretty bad as well. Um, okay. The general perception against drones is against drones and not for drones. Right. Um, and what I see definitely with the podcasts um, that I've done with, with a lot of African countries uh -huh. is there is a completely different way around. Um, people are very excited about drones and the, the general population is not afraid or scared of it. They just think of it more as, okay, look, it's great. A new um, business opportunities will come in and so on. Right. Um, while I think, or definitely here in Belgium, we're people can be very conservative about something new that is changing within their lives. Right. Um, and they're a bit afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that that's how it, yeah, I think that's how it feels in the U S too, is that people just don't understand. So I guess that would be a hope of mine in the next five years of the drone industry is that it in general starts to be more understood and accepted. And I think that will help to push the innovation a bit further. Right so that we can realize yeah. the capabilities fully. Yeah, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be. Absolutely. Um, all right, Anna, thank you so much for joining me. It was um, a real pleasure to getting to know you and uh, maybe we'll hear each other in the future as well. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you, Leonard, it was great.